everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Proud to Work in Cannabis Podcast. We are just coming off of Benzinga, and today my guest, I've known for a very long time, we saw each other, we spent some time actually spending more time outside of Colorado than we are in Colorado, but today I have Christine Hodgton, who today is the COO of Highway Cannabis, very popular retailer in California. Christine has also been the VP of People at Native Roots, which we'll talk about. She's been the COO at Vanxed, my company, and of course now the COO at a leading cannabis retailer. So a ton to dig into and talk about today. Christine, finally, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Carson. I know we've been trying to get this on the books for a while. It's been difficult to connect, but I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to be here. We didn't even get any golfing together this year. No, I know that was such a bummer. I didn't play as much as I wanted to either. Well, today it's like going to be 80 degrees in Denver. So I think that there's still hope for us in October or early November to get, we have to get at least nine holes in together. Yeah. Let's please make that happen for sure. Please. All right. Well, let's talk about a great story of the day that someone messaged you about the cannabis industry. Give us a story. Yeah, it was actually Jenna Myers, who's still on board with you. I believe she's director of client services or something in that realm. Yep. Uh, Jenna's fantastic. She reached out to me back in 2017, saw my profile online and thought I might be a good fit for the cannabis industry. I have to admit at first I was like, I'm not too sure about this. Uh, Obviously it'd been legal for a few years, but I took a meeting, right? Because it can't hurt. And and Jenna was very convincing. She had all of her ducks in a row. It seemed legit and professional. So and and, and just and you were in and this was in Colorado, and the potential customer of Native Roots was also in Colorado, just to set the stage for people. Yes, for sure. And so I did. I took the meeting with Native Roots uh, per Jenna's advice, and they were so buttoned up and professional. I was so impressed with everybody that I met there. They were growing their operation. Uh, they really had buttoned up you know, their vertical. Uh, so I continued to have conversations with them and ultimately decided to take the leap. It is a very funny story too, because at the time, Vanks was pretty small. We were only, I think, 10, 15 people. And Christine, yeah, we were moving up market in terms of the type of candidates that we were placing. And so Christine was the biggest candidate we'd ever placed in terms of, I think, title, salary, everything. And so our little team was having an offsite in Breckenridge, and we got the signed offer letter back from Christine to then send over to Native Roots. And we were in Breckenridge, and Jenna Myers bought champagne for everyone, and we were opening the champagne and spraying the champagne at everyone, at each other, yelling, Christine, Christine. So we were extremely happy. And so uh, Christine joined Native Roots and talked to us about what you walked into as their new VP of people and what that experience of going from not in cannabis into cannabis, especially in 2017. I mean, this is a long time ago. Yeah. And and my background's a little unique because I have this sort of hybrid, started my career in people, did a lot of work in operations, wanted to break into cannabis. So this seemed, you know, after having these conversations, got super interested. So it seemed like the right leap. Native Roots opened two stores within two months of my starting. So it was absolute chaos. Uh, It was Trinidad and their tower store. Uh, They had great processes for opening stores. These guys had done it 18 times before. But then there was a lot of, say, not scalable and repeatable processes. So coming in there, there was a bit of cleanup work, trying to understand, like, how do we actually build a really rock-solid foundation that prepares us for better scale and growth? Uh, I give them a, a ton of credit, though, for the company that they built, 
uh, and everything that they were able to accomplish. But there was definitely good amount of cleanup work. Uh, we spent a lot of time focusing on like, how do we attract and retain talent? I got into the cannabis industry and quickly learned that attrition was 70%. I'd never seen numbers like that before. So I- Why do you think that is, by the way? I mean, I think it's still probably like that. Why do you think that is? I think a lot of people get into it for the wrong reasons. I think they think it's really attractive and sexy and exciting. And so they want to jump into cannabis and then they get in and they're like, oh my God, this is a lot of really hard work. Mm-hmm. I also think folks saw an opportunity for explosive trajectories in their careers, and many folks benefited from that, but that wasn't the case for everyone. So when they weren't getting promoted or like high-level opportunities right out the gate, they started to move on from the space. Yeah, we can talk about that when we get into Vangst. All the people that originally worked here thought that they were going to be the COO, and then when we brought in the COO, they revolted. So, you know, we've seen that even in our own companies. But I think that's a great point. Exactly. I mean, listen, I think in cannabis, there is an opportunity to fast track your career because we, sure. we've heard some of these incredible success stories where we hear about somebody who started out as a trimmer, fully moving up the ranks and ultimately becoming a head cultivator and then getting an opportunity to move state and open a new business exactly. in a new market. So like, don't get me wrong. I think that the career trajectories are certainly faster in this industry, but I think people came into this space and thought, if I work hard for one year, I'm going to become a mega multi-millionaire CEO. And I think people had like a very rude awakening. And I think that continues to be the case. But anyway, backing it, backing it up. So you joined Native Roots within the first two weeks. You guys open Trinidad in 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 Tower Road, and and you stayed there for you know until uh, 2019. What, what other what what other things did you? learn in in your time at Native Roots? Yeah, I mean, look, it's a lot about finding what your customer wants and servicing that unique selling proposition. So we had a large vertical. There was a heavy production of flour, excess production than we could consume. So subject a lot to the wholesale market, which was very tricky. We focused a lot on customer demands and then how did we service them? Native Roots had one of the most robust training programs for any new hire that I've probably seen to date with great learning management solution. Uh, was I was really proud of all the work that the team did on that. But again, still suffered a little bit because of the attrition. It's really hard to have that experience when customers come in if their bud tender is no longer there and you're turning the whole company every 18 months. So yeah, I mean, just a lot of focus on like, what does the customer want? What's the value prop? How do we create new and innovative products was was kind of the game. And then moving into Vangst. And so, of course, this attrition problem, Vangst was working on solving. And so mm-hmm. I actively recruited Christine to to leave Native Roots, which, by the way, you know, for everyone listening, Native Roots is a customer of ours. And so we, we obviously spoke to them about it before we were able to convince Christine left on yeah, great terms. Left on totally um, great terms. But Christine joined yeah. Vanks just after we had closed our Series A. And so we had closed the Series A and we really wanted to expand, especially our gigs business. And so, but but Christine, this was, Vanks was really one of your first times going into a true early stage startup. So, you know, I know we've debriefed on it a little bit, but talk to us about, what that was like, leaving a company with, you know, a couple hundred people and systems and processes to coming into Vanks, which was, quite frankly, a shit show at the time that you joined, um, um, a growing shit show. So uh, we would love to 
hear a little bit about that from your perspective. I mean, look, Native Roots had a lot of employees, but it still was very much in startup mode. So it felt similar to come into banks. It just felt like I had a lot more autonomy and flexibility to make the changes that we needed to make. You were really open to what do we need to do to grow this thing? How do we target you know, cannabis customers? Uh, and I felt like we had a lot of great opportunity to have these strategy sessions to say, like, what changes need to be made? And we were able to move really, really fast, which was exciting. I mean, I think we both know we had some great revenue months when we were together, driving gigs and direct hire. Obviously, the focus on the platform was key too. building out a platform that made sense, easier to hire, help combat this attrition issue that plagued the cannabis industry. Um but I don't know that there was a whole lot of difference. It was kind of like, okay, what's the burning fire of today? How do we tackle that, solve it, and move on to the next? Setting meaningful goals that we could tackle in a meaningful time frame to help set up the business to grow. Yeah, and for people listening, when Christine joined with, with another, with uh, we we also hired a CRO at the time, and when when they joined, we actually grew the business from four million dollars to nine and a half million dollars in under 12 months yeah. uh, from the time that they joined. And so this was the, you know, the year after we had raised a seed, then we went and raised a series A. And so we were totally in this early phase, double down on growth and executed incredibly well until March of 2020, when suddenly our revenue got cut, cut by 80%. So Christina, I, I would love for, to, obviously I lived it, but to hear your perspective on what happened during COVID how we responded as operators, which of course you led this charge as our COO to make sure that, that we live to see another day. But I, you know, I think that that was just such a crazy time in cannabis for everyone and, and for us especially. Yeah, I think the initial response is batting down the hatches. Uh, you know, you got you to weather this storm. No one knew what to expect. Nothing had happened like this in modern history. So we were obviously really nervous. We had experienced this amazing growth trajectory. I think we got a call and most of our gig workers got pulled within that first month. Uh, we also were combating most of our bench, as you and I have talked about this, our gig bench had been with us for a while. We had built this really strong bench of gig workers, specifically in the cultivation space, that we were able to deploy to all these clients. And they they were workers of angst. Well, with all the sick leave laws and everything going on, it became really expensive to continue to hold this bench without having any clients on the docket because all of our clients immediately started battening down the hatches. So we basically had to wipe out all the work that we did and just get to this place that we could survive and, and figure out a, a new trajectory to grow. I mean, I'm sure same as you, it was terrifying. Yeah, it was horrifying. I mean, and, and for people listening, as you know, Vanks provides Vanks W2 ready to go workers to our customers. These are our workers. And we had thousands of them ready to go in, in, in our system. And we got all these rules that said, if a worker gets sick, your employee gets sick, you have to pay them for like, you know, six weeks or something. So we started adding it up in our head and thought to ourselves, we've got seven, several thousand workers. If they all get sick, I mean, we're not going to be able to afford to pay them all to, to, to work. And so with no revenue coming in. So we had to, and again, they ended up kind of changing this rule a little bit later, but we had to, you know, basically terminate all of these gig workers not that they were active at the time but your whole business is building up the bench of the workers to then send to your customers so that happened and then you know all of our customers had to operate at 50 percent capacity and so they didn't want gig workers they also wanted to 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 not spend any money so they weren't hiring 
executives. And so when I tell you that our business got absolutely slammed, it felt like we had just spent a little over a year building up and just to watch it all come crashing down. But I will say, Christine, I thought you did a phenomenal job of staying calm, cool, collected during a moment of crisis because God knows I was about to jump out of a window and it was lucky that we had Christine to remain calm. We had a set plan. We executed the plan and look, we're still in business. I mean, it's, it's, it, had we not made those decisions, you know, from, from, with the help of Christine, I'm not sure that, that we still would be in business today, but it was an incredibly crazy time and experience that we went through together. It, it really was. I mean, there's nothing to even compare it to. I, I'm just grateful that my mindset is generally when there's a crisis or a problem is like, what can I solve? Let's get to work. And I think we did that really well. And we sure, I'm sure we made some mistakes along the way. I don't think there's a business out there that could say they didn't, but I think we did what we had to do to preserve the business. Absolutely. And so anyway, Christine stayed with us through, through, you know, COVID. And then it was very, it was just, wasn't, we weren't really sure when the growth for our business was going to come back. And Christine got a great opportunity to go to Highway Cannabis. So Christine, why don't you talk to us a little bit about the Highway Cannabis opportunity and why you were excited about it. And then, you know, I want to dig into some of the meat of, you know, operating, uh, being an operator in the retail space, especially in California. Yeah, for sure. So I was employee number two at Highway. I essentially was there before there was a highway. Uh, we acquired some assets in California. We have an asset in Marina del Rey and, and two stores up in Santa Cruz, California called Kind Peoples. Uh, was really excited to do this because I work with the CEO, Chris Cologne. We had a shared vision on how we wanted to run these retail assets and be able to really just operate with maximum efficiency, focus on customer service. Our general you know, ethos is owning our radius, right? Being so indoctrinated into the community that we become the cannabis brand of choice. There's areas that I think we've done that really well, areas where we need improvement for sure. Uh, but it was really exciting to kind of go in, do this M&A work. One asset was a little bit distressed while the other assets were a bit more cornerstone. Um, but this was all coming out of COVID. And as you well know, while COVID was tough for ancillary companies, it was amazing for cannabis companies. Revenues were through the roof. Everybody was kind of spending money on purchasing cannabis. Uh, so it, you're coming out of this air, this time when we saw just this massive spike in revenue, and then that started to teeter off. So it was about adjusting now to these new revenue turns and how we could manage that with right operational expenditure. So one thing we really focus on is obviously our labor and our COGS, because as we've continued to compress in revenue, you know, top line has decreased year over year a little bit, just to stabilize from this spike of 2020, actually our profitability has increased year over year. Um, so it's, you know, really just about managing your controllable expenses as an operator, which is tough to do in cannabis, specifically in California. You know, I, I was thinking about this the other day and at the end of 2019, we were kind of in the canna session, right? We, we had this huge influx of cash that came into cannabis. Yeah. End of 2019, things got a little bit tough. COVID happened. And I think that what happened in 2019 ended up resurfacing in end of 2021, beginning of 2022, when stimulus started running out. Agreed. And so the last, God, two years in the cannabis industry, I mean, look, we speak about it on this podcast time and time again. It's been like a great extinction event for these cannabis business, particularly 
for the businesses in California where it seems like you are, it is a bloodbath there. So how have you and Chris and the highway team made it through this incredibly turbulent two years in cannabis? Yeah, I mean, look, cash is king. So it's about managing your cash flow in and out. You know, we have a very tight open to buy budget. We have a highly curated menu where we work with very specific brands. Uh, you know, the retailers need to recover the cash before they can be spending more money on inventory. But the brands also need cash so they can continue to produce. So if you can get into good arrangements where you're paying on time and they can trust you to be a good brand partner, you can get some terms with these brands so that you can recover some cash to allocate to new inventory. But we do a lot of work on our curated menu, and I think that's really helped us have high margin products that our customers like that we look at least once a quarter. And in doing this work, we evaluate diminishing returns. So we look at what SKU counts make the most sense categorically and where do we start seeing diminishing returns? Like adding more SKUs is nothing more than tying up more cash in inventory that we frankly can't afford to do. So I manage a really tight open to buy budget, our, our menu, we, we do 21-day inventory turns, which I know a lot of folks think I'm crazy in cannabis for running it that tight, but it works. You know, Obviously, we have our never-out categories. We make sure that those are always in stock all the time, um, but that's helped us you know, operate in a really, with some really good rigor around our cash management. And then labor. Labor is a big expense. California has the requirement of security, uh, so that's an additional labor cost that you have. And it's you know expensive to do business in California, but we heat map a lot of our stores and look at when our high times are and try to schedule our labor appropriately so we're not having these massive influx of labor or overtime. Our bud tenders are really fortunate where they're able to make a significant amount of extra cash earning tips. Um, so that's been a bit of an augmentation uh, in that. But those two controllables, I mean, I probably look at those numbers every day. The, the two controllables being Cog, COGS, cost of goods, inventory, and labor. Um, inventory and labor. Yeah. And back to the to the point that you just made around the terms that you can get with the brands if you pay on time. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about that. And so that means that, you know, are you getting six 30-day terms, 60-day terms? That if, if I'm a retailer, what do I need to do to be able to get terms from my brand partners? Because I know such a big challenge for retailers is exactly what you just described. Um, yes. Yeah, so to so, so walk me through how you've been able to negotiate those terms. Yeah. I mean, look, we partner with top vendors in the space, ones that we carry a larger portion of their portfolio, mainly because they have some good products. And we, because our, we're so curated, and we pay on time. And so we were able to build that reputation with the brands. And as such, kind of reached out to them and said, hey, it would be a lot easier for us if we could operate on terms. I don't think too many people are doing net 60. Look, I would love it if brands wanted to talk consignment. But, uh, you know, I, ideal for us is net 30. And that's because I'm trying to run, you know, 21 day turns. So in my perfect world, I'm recovering all of my spend prior to me essentially paying that invoice. So I've recovered, I've reissued, I'm paying, I've recovered, I've reissued, I'm paying. Um, that's like my ideal scenario. We don't have that with every brand, but back several years ago, I mean, it was COD, right? You, you're, you're, you're handing out cash at the time the, the inventory sit in the store. Uh, that just makes it really hard because you're shelling out the cash before you've recovered it. Now, granted, it all catches up, 
but as you want to introduce new products, and if you have some duds on the shelf that aren't really moving that you have to fire sale, which everybody's had, uh, <laughs> you know, this, this model has just worked better for us. And I, it's the, the crazy thing about it is, is that in any other right. space, you just get a basic line of credit to help you with this. And the right. lines of credit in cannabis are just so expensive that it honestly doesn't even make sense. I mean, we're in a similar boat with our business because exactly. we pay the gig workers before we get paid. And so our customers want 30 day terms, 60 day terms. And look, I would love to be able to do that, but it's like, we have to pay the workers before we get paid from the customer. And so to offer somebody 60 day terms, similar to what I'm sure the brands are saying to you is basically like giving them a, an interest free loan. Well, and many of these brands have been totally burned, right? Retailers burned. just not paying. So I totally respect it. Uh, and that's why we've kind of tried to build this reputation of paying on time. I can't say that we were always perfect, specifically in the beginning when we were setting all this up, but that is our goal now. Uh, and it's part of what we spend a lot of time you know, working on. So in, in California, are you seeing a lot of consolidation or are you seeing people just straight up go out of business or what is the dynamic looking like today, this moment of time, October 2nd, 2023? I mean, California is a tough market. You've heard many of the MSOs just exiting, right? Just saying we can't, we can't operate here. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, number one is there's about 12,000 licenses in California today. Now, whether they're all active, I couldn't tell you, but the state's doing about 430 million in revenue per month. In legal revenue. In legal, in le correct. Yes, that's a good qualifier. <laughs> now, tell, wh what about, I mean, I you hear these stories, but I don't actually know. I, I've heard something like there's more illegal operation in California than legal. Is that a total myth or do you think that's true? No, I, I think that there's a, there's a point to be made there. If you shop at one of my stores, you're going to pay upwards of 30% in taxes between sales tax and what, I, you know, excise tax, municipality or local tax. Um, there hasn't seemed to been like an, a crazy crackdown on some of these gray or black market operators in the space. So if they can get away with it and do it, I think a lot of them are going to do that. You know, we pride ourselves in being completely above board and doing everything as compliantly as possible. And we certainly pay the price for that, um, you know, within the market. But California still has a super robust black market. It's saturated. If you think back to that 430 million a month with potentially 12,000 licenses, if everyone was to have an equal share, you're only talking about 3,500 bucks a month in revenue. Oh my God. Yeah. So the key here is scale, right? You have to be able to scale. It's hard. California is expensive. You have to have the right retail locations. You have to have great rent factors. And back to our original ethos at highways, like you really need to own your five mile radius of where you're doing business. How are you driving customer loyalty? Do you have the right products on the shelf that the customers want to see? And then again, price, can you service this price compression that's happening in the market? How does two, removing 280E and rescheduling, how does that impact your business? Rescheduling is a bit of a sticky one because I don't really know, nobody really knows what it looks like as a schedule three. Uh, I think there's a lot of questions because it's still regulated in that it just removes, you know, what we do know is 280E goes away. I mean, certainly I think we- we've, But how big of a burden on your business is, is 280E? Oh, it's, it's massive on any cannabis retailer specifically because nothing that we do is, is deductible. No ordinary business expense is deductible. So- it would make a big, I mean, and again, this is what we're obviously hearing across the board. So a world without 280E gives you significantly more 
margin. Yeah, I mean, cannabis is one of the more ta- most taxed industries out there. So a world without 280E it definitely significantly helps almost every cannabis operator, specifically retailers. So when you think about a world without 280E, and potentially sooner than later, maybe 2024, where do you see your your business reinvesting the capital that you would have that you were spending on taxes? I mean, we we talked to some of our MSO customers; they pay. 30 to 40 million dollars per quarter wow. in 280E taxes. And so, of course, we've been having meetings with them, talking to them about where do you reinvest this? So I'm curious from your perspective, of course, you know, smaller scale than MSOs, when you think about higher margins, not having 280E, what, what, what excite, where did you get excited to reinvest that, that capital? I think it's what excites me is more explosive growth, right? You have an opportunity to grow with your own capital versus kind of some predatory debt that's out there. Uh, I think we both saw reinvigoration at Benzinga. Folks seem to be a little more excited from like a total capital dry up to like, okay, well, we're ready to deploy more capital into this space. I think that still comes at a high cost per capital today. So if you're able to generate cash to grow your own business internally, and it doesn't take you forever to do so, that excites me a ton. I think there's a, a ton of operators that won't be able to dig out of their the mess that they're in. There's a lot of distressed assets out there now. And so if you're able to come in and turn those around, specifically in a post-280E world, mm. that, that's going to be fantastic. Yeah. So an opportunity for companies that are in a strong position to buy some of the distressed assets and make them more efficient, which seems like it's totally your your jam. Yeah, that's it's like my favorite thing to do is come in and just hone in on efficiencies. How optimistic are you? Because for me, I, I, it's funny, I'd send a note to I sent a note to our investors this weekend and I said, look, I was super excited at Benzing. I've never seen people as enthusiastic as I have. I shouldn't say I've never. I haven't seen people as enthusiastic as they are right now in at least a couple of years. But mm-hmm. we've been down this road where we've gotten so excited before. You know, yes. um, safe banking has passed the House seven times. So safer banking, making it through the banking Senate committee is great, but we still got to have to get through a full Senate vote and we have to make it through the House. So there's an obstacles there. And the HHS, you know, making the, you know, saying that they're suggesting to the DEA to reschedule, they still have to do it. So I'm like really excited, but I'm also yeah nervous because i think that if it doesn't happen this industry has it's going to be like so crazy rough so it's crazy to think about the two extremes that we could go into in 2024 like it could be the best year ever for cannabis or it could potentially be the worst year ever so where's your head at when you think about that balance right now i mean i'm with you i i said the same thing we've been down this road before so i'm so cautiously optimistic I don't think it gets through quickly. Um, you know, we've seen these recommendations before and then it's been radio silent. I think there's a little more of a vested interest given how much cannabis has grown and the legalization across the country. But I don't imagine anything happens quickly. Again, I don't have a crystal ball uh, and I don't have a direct line to the executive branch either. But I just I don't see this getting over the finish line in the near term. Um, and so taxes are going to continue to pay a big hurdle within the space. Yeah. And so the message that I'm actually, I heard, um, I was sitting with one of our investors and he was pitching like an LP and the LP was like, 
limited partner was like, listen, I'm in the show me, don't tell me camp at this point. Yeah. And so I'm not investing any more money into your fund or any cannabis business until I actually see this. And I think that that's where we are. And so I know for, for my business, I'm like, listen, I really hope this happens, but we're not changing the plan at all. We're not hiring anybody else. We're not hitting the growth gas until I am positive that turning on the growth gas will result in near-term revenue to sustain the expenses because we've all made the mistake. I mean, like, How many times have we gone and hired a bunch of people anticipating extreme growth in cannabis and it doesn't happen? You've burned unnecessarily. You have to unwind the premature growth, which is, by the way, extremely painful to company culture, process, whatever. And we've all been down this road. So like- 100%. I'm just hoping that people don't get over their skis before something actually um, happens. Even though it would be actually better for our business if people start crazy hiring, it's like, I don't know, because then they'll all be doing layoffs if this doesn't work out, and then it will just, you know, be on this this hamster wheel again. Well, and and just because we have this on the horizon, it's not an excuse to all of a sudden get inefficient. Right. Right. Manage the business that you have today. Prepare for growth responsibly. Um, You know, I think it helps a lot with the price compression that we're seeing. I mean, an avenue to avoid taxation so egregiously like we are today is, you know, monumental for this space. Uh, but I mean, like you had mentioned, there's sort of two paths, you know, back in 2021, when that can of session sort of started rehitting, a lot of folks took on a lot of predatory debt. And all that debt is coming due, you know, the hens are coming home to roost. And <laughs> I've seen a ton of deals out there and folks just can't service the debt. Mm-hmm. Uh, right? They just, it's just impossible. That's a great point to bring up on the debt front. I think that in all the cases that I've seen where I've seen founders or early people just totally lose control of the businesses because couldn't meet their debt obligations. Yeah. And that's where safer banking would be mm-hmm. fantastic if that actually got through because access to banking and traditional capital, you know, more normalized payment options. I mean, that provides a major competitive advantage to the space. Uh, it's pretty, that would be really critical uh, in helping cannabis survive and grow is getting safer banking through. But again, cautiously optimistic because we've been down this road so many times. If you, I know we're coming up on our, on our time here, but if you were uh, giving yourself advice, you were entering a new business in an operating role, what advice would you give to yourself having been on this journey with Native Roots, Vanks, Highway, all, you know, similar, but, but different kinds of um, businesses. What, what advice would you give to yourself? Yeah. I mean, one thing I think I see a lot in cannabis is this shiny object syndrome is getting easily distracted by what's next. (laughs) You're not alone. You're in really good company. So like continue to drive the industry forward. I mean, everybody talks about wellness. Everybody talks about cannabinoids and terps and how exciting that is. I'm in that camp. I love all of those things. However, that's not what's going to drive your business forward today. You know, wellness makes up less than 5% of the total market. I'm a big fan of the products. I use it today. Um, But if you put all your energy into these tertiary things in the hope that you're going to grow them, you're going to end up alienating your current customer base and totally destroying your business. What drives, so if if 5% is wellness, what's the other 95, like hardcore people? I mean, it's mostly flower, vape, pre-roll edibles. Those are, those are always going to be your high performing categories. And if the world kind of follows California, you know, you'll see that those categories will mainstay and continue to grow. You know, you introduce things like beverages. They're cool. They're exciting, but they're a small percent of the share. 
I'm not saying don't carry them. I'm not saying don't do them or don't pay attention to them. It's just you got to really listen to what the customer is saying. So my point is like, don't get distracted and let that distraction consume you. Right. Go off and find new discoveries, innovate, but make sure you're servicing the business that you have in front of you and you're solving the problems that are in front of you. That's a great tip. In in your stores, in your for your customer base, do you is your customer um, the do you see it's the person that is more of a consuming once a week kind of using it in an alternative to alcohol, you know, uh, like a how I would maybe think about people consuming wine or is the majority of your people people who consume every single day and they're in to buy product reload every week, similar to how you would um, like at a grocery store? I think we have a mix of all, but flour wins the day at our stores. You know, it's still the highest producing product category. Um, I would say in my Southern California store, that's even more true than in Northern California. Um, We definitely try to have a place that everybody feels comfortable shopping. We have this very normalized frictionless shopping experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's kind of one of our value props. But yeah, I mean, we see a little bit of both, but flour is still really important to the space. Yeah, I think that there's, you know, I think that's a great point. I mean, you bring up like, think about like, when you go to the when you go to the grocery store, like all those like, fun, awesome wellness products, like you don't buy them that often. Like it's kind of like a treat versus like you have to, you buy what you're going to eat every single day. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. There's some great wellness brands out there that are bringing awesome products to the market. And I'm really pro those brands and those products. Me too. But as a retailer, I have to recognize where my growth potential is. If I can grow flour by 2%, Obviously, I don't have to explain to you that that's a lot more significantly than me growing wellness by 2% because flour is <laughs> doing like close to 40% of the sales. Yeah, yeah um, exactly. So I, I have to just make sure that when I'm focusing my energies, I'm doing it in the right way, leaving that time for innovation, but not letting you know perfect be the enemy of good. Yeah, the shiny object syndrome. There's always going to be something exciting, but bringing it back to protecting your core. Protecting I think that's a, core, a, exactly. a lesson that you know we've even learned at Vangst of like, what's our core business and how do we protect it? And how do we contain the shiny object so that the whole company doesn't lose sight of the core? Exactly. And that we're not off here in, in blue ocean strategy and then completely abandoning how we make money today. Yeah, we had an employee, and I won't say his name, but you and I used to call this person the dreamer. And we were like, how do we get the job of the dreamer? You know what I mean? Because you got to dream a little bit, but you got to execute in here and not be living in the clouds over there. Because, But listen, there's companies, big, big companies where you can dream up a storm all day long. I just don't think there's opportunities to be a full-time dreamer in the cannabis industry yet. No, I don't see that either. I think those folks are quickly weaned out and... It, and trade it up for doers, right? It's okay. You have to kind of be able to wear, I mean, multiple hats in this space. Every You have to really be able to do it all. I, I, I frequently go and work shifts on my floor mm. as a bud tender because I think that that's an opportunity for me to get back in touch with the customer, get some direct feedback, feel the pain points of the bud tenders, and you know, just maybe pivot some programs. So if we ever have an event, I'm usually on the floor. If I'm looking to do something different or launch something new, I'll go and serve a little time on the floor. Uh, I think there's a lot to be said for that. You're you're never going to learn more than you do when you actually talk to your customers. Yeah, I am getting my med badge right now in Colorado. It's kind of crazy. I don't have it yet. And I'm going to start doing a thing where once a quarter I, I, I work a gig. So I'm going to sign up like a gig worker. I'm going to get assigned to a gig. You know, the customer is going to have no idea 
that I'm the one that's going to come to the gig. They probably still won't know, you know, because I'm going to be reporting to like a trim manager, but I'm going to work the gig for the day and see like day in the life of a Vegas gigster because I, I think that's so key, you know? It's, uh, it, it will be. You'll get so many awesome learnings out of that. I mean, you're probably going to, if you do a trimming job, you're probably going to have the most pounds trimmed of anybody there I hope. because I, I know how you focus, but. Or the um, least, or I might just I suck at trimming. <laughs> nah, you'll be all right. Uh, but you're going to gain some awesome insights. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm really excited about, I'm, I'm, I'm actually more, I'm, I'm excited about trimming. I think that will, I think I'll, I think I'll do okay there, but I'm excited about bud tending. That's the gig that I'm really the most, you know, I'm looking forward to, um, you know, being in the store, interacting with customers, hearing about what sells well. And I hope that I'm able to kind of take that and go back to our customers and offer some insight of like, this is what it's like working a bud tending, um, shift for you. Yeah. It's, it's a hard job. There's a lot of SKUs. You have to know a lot of things. People come in with insane amounts of questions, right? How do I solve this problem? How do I solve that problem? Or I just want to get really, really high. Where's your highest THC? Um, you know, you, you really run the gamut. And that's why like having this curated menu has been so important for us because we can train on it. You know, you have 1500 SKUs on the floor. Mm -hmm. It's not possible for a bud tender to know everything about those. Exactly. And I use my, my gig name is going to be Carson Brovich, my new last name. So nobody's Ah, even going to know that I'm, that I'm the the founder of this company. And I want to see how people treat the gig workers too. You know, I've been, I want to see how our customers treat our gig workers. You know, I, I, like, I think, a huge thing that you're such a big advocate on is making your company, so whether it was Highway, Native Roots, Banks, a place where employees want to come to work and they're treated really well. And I think you've done such a great job of that. And I think that helps with the the 70% turnover rate. If you're treated well and you see a career trajectory and you feel like you're part of something, you're much more likely to show up. I, you know, this, this is my last question for you, but how have you gone about um, helping your employees feel so bought in and, um, you know, you've just done such a great job of fostering great cultures at the places that you've worked. So how, how do you how do you do that in a nutshell? I know it's a hard question. No, thank you. Uh, thank you for the compliment. Um, I'm proud that since I started at Highway, I've had 0% turnover on my leadership team, which is fantastic. I think mainly it comes from like clear and transparent goals, right? We set the goals, we hold ourselves accountable to them. Everybody knows how they're contributing to the whole. We tell the team what's going on in the company, the good, the bad, the ugly. We're very honest about it. And I'm big on accountability, but not in a sense of micromanaging. I hire adults. We, we meet together, we decide on what the goals are and, and the building blocks that we're going to take each quarter. And then we're going to hold ourselves accountable to those at the end of the quarter, obviously with regular check-ins. Um, but I'm not going to micromanage it. If you, if you need a lot of follow-up and somebody stay on top of you, you're probably not going to be successful on my team. But if you want to have autonomy to achieve your goals and really contribute, then you're probably going to do pretty well. But I, I really just think it's about being fair, being honest, and caring about people and not just as employees, as humans, right? Just show them that you truly care about them as more than just a member of of your team. And uh, that's something that I like to take away as like a personal legacy of leadership. If anybody who ever worked for me said I was fair, honest, and I cared about them, then I did my job. Well, the people at Vanks who worked for you certainly, certainly felt that. And well, I, I know we're at a time here. We're at the the forty minute mark, so actually we went ten minutes over. But Christine, thank you so much for coming on. If people want to get in touch with you at Highway Cannabis or want to shop at Highway Cannabis, how, how can people come and experience this frictionless, awesome 
experience at, at your stores in California? Yeah, we're in Marina Del Rey and Santa Kind Peoples in Santa Cruz. So come on in. Uh, I am on LinkedIn. You can find me really easily on there and connect on LinkedIn. That's probably the, the easiest way. Absolutely. We will drop Christine's LinkedIn. You can find it in the show notes. So Christine, thank you again for coming on and excited to see what 2024 in the cannabis industry brings for you. And yeah, thanks again for being here. Thanks so much, Carson. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin, and I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday.